Hi, I'm Angel Finsrud, and this is my Wilderness Moment. When my son Matthew was about five years old, God started to stir in our heart the idea of adoption. And it took many years and a lot of red tape, but eventually we met our daughter. We began to build a family just like everybody else, dinner time and homework and arguments over shorts that were too short. And then one day while our daughter was at school, we received a call from a social worker. She let us know that even though we were two years into building our family, a mistake had been made in the paperwork and our daughter had a father with parental rights. She asked us to pack her things and told us she'd be there in an hour to pick them up, that our daughter was not coming home. We never got to spend time together as a family again. I cried a lot. But when I stopped crying, there was still this deep emptiness that I'd never experienced before. Emptiness because I missed my daughter terribly, but also because something in my relationship with God had changed. I was in the wilderness. One morning in my living room, I was struggling to find any way to connect with God, to hear Him again, and I opened my Bible to the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 74 and again in 77, I found this writer who was saying, God, where are you? And how come you haven't rescued me? And I feel abandoned by you. And how come you're so mean to me? And I felt like I could relate to what he was saying. I think before I'd always fast forwarded to the end of the chapter where the psalmist was saying, okay, God, but no matter what happens, you're good, we're good. And I felt like maybe God wanted me to fast forward my life to that place too. But that morning, it was like God spoke to me in a whisper and said, Angel, you don't know how long it was between the pain and the praise. And it's okay for you to be right where you are. It's not like I was immediately out of the wilderness. But God used that time in the wilderness to grow me, to teach me that He was okay with my pain and my frustration, with my hurt, with my doubt, that He could handle it all and He would love me through it and He would get me through the wilderness. And I'm glad that He did because without that season, I could have never said yes. I would have never had the courage to say yes to what God had for us next. I still miss my daughter all the time and wish that that would have gone differently. But I'm also so grateful for the three amazing boys God has allowed us to adopt. It took courage to risk that again, to say yes to the hurt that might come if we said yes. But in the wilderness, I learned that even if the happy ending is never written, even if the healing doesn't come, even if the road is long and hard and it feels like the promised land is so far away, I can trust God. He will get me through it. Maybe I can't trust Him to fix everything or make everything better all the time, but I can trust Him to be with me, to hold me, even in the wilderness. I'm so unbelievably grateful for the people who've been courageous enough to share their wilderness moments with us throughout this series. And I want to personally thank Angel for sharing that very painful moment, but growing moment in her life. My father-in-law passed away 28 years ago, 28 years too soon. The first time I showed up at the farm, there was an encyclopedia and a necktie that looked like a fish taped to the door with a sign above it that said, Welcome Fishbook. 
And I laughed at the welcome, and I also took note of the very large shotgun that was hanging right inside of the front door as I walked in. My father-in-law was articulate, funny, very protective. He loved a good debate. He loved his Bible. He loved the song, How Great Thou Art. And I'm so glad we got to sing it today. He loved his baby girl so much. My father-in-law was a prankster. He loved to tie my shoelaces into knots so that we could have a few extra moments of talk time in the back porch before I headed back to college. My father-in-law was generous because after I got my shoes untied, he would normally invite me to this big fuel tank at the back of the farm where he would fill my car up. And if that didn't happen, he stuck a $100 bill in my pocket before I left. This is the kind of man my father-in-law was. I broke up with his daughter because I was an idiot. Eventually, she took me back. But in spite of doing that, he paid off my missionary support for an entire summer working at camp anyway. I miss Dad. Every day. And I wonder what our world and our life would look like if we had access to his wisdom. I wanted you to know about him because we're going to talk about father-in-laws today. I'd like to introduce you to another father-in-law. He's a model of wisdom and help and hope in the middle of the wilderness. I love the fact that in the middle of the wilderness, God often brings us someone. Someone who can stand with us. Someone who can teach us. Someone who can encourage us as we try to navigate that liminal space, that wilderness space, that transition space between where we've come from, where we are, and where we hope to get to. If you're catching up with us, Moses has led the people out of Egypt, out of captivity, and then reality sets in. He is the reluctant leader of this group of people who have made a fine art out of whining and complaining. In spite of everything that the people of Israel have actually seen God do. I mean, just think about it. The plagues in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, bread from heaven, water from a rock. In spite of all of those indications that God is in control, they just refuse to commit to following him fully and completely. Last week, Emily talked about Exodus chapter 17, where we saw the people of Israel win a great battle because of Moses having young leaders hold his hands up in the middle of a battle. If you missed last week's message, make sure you go back. Emily is such a gift to the Christ the King community because she's taught us several times now, how do we hear the voice of God in the midst of the wilderness? This weekend, we come to Exodus 18. Most people read Exodus 18 and then they jump to the end of it because it's a very famous portion of scripture. If you've ever gone to a Christian leadership conference, I promise you somebody has shared principles from Exodus chapter 18. It's an epic passage of scripture. We're going to get there and, and it teaches about leadership and delegation and tenure and wisdom and priorities and endurance. We're going to get there. But before we get there, I want to share with you a portion of Exodus 18 that I have missed my whole life. I have studied this passage over and over again for 30 plus years and I saw something 10 days ago that I have never, ever seen before. The chapter starts with these words. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, you should underline and circle that, and father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done. Stop right there just for a second. Apparently Moses had married the daughter of a Midianite priest. That's actually a really big deal. Moses' father-in-law was a spiritual leader in a rival pagan culture. 
Let me catch you up to speed. If you remember back, Moses was the baby in the bulrushes in the little basket. Then he grows up in Pharaoh's household, actually becomes a leader in Egypt. And then one day he sees an Egyptian slave driver mercilessly beating a Hebrew slave. His Hebrew blood boils and he actually commits murder. And then he runs for his life into the wilderness. And the Bible tells us he ends up in a place called Midian. In his escape... He meets a religious and governmental leader, a man by the name of Jethro, falls in love with his baby girl and becomes a part of his family. Jethro was a Midianite priest. There's not much known about the worship of the Midianites. It appears they were a hybrid religion. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Ashtaroth, who was a sexual god. And they even had a little bit of Hebrew belief mixed in. Don't miss the relevancy or the irony of that picture. Upwards of 80% of people in this country identify as Christian. But we throw in a little bit of this kind of idolatry and a little bit of this kind of idolatry and a little bit of greed and a little bit of materialism and we throw in a few platitudes on the weekend, a good dose of hypocrisy, and we have a name for it. We call it Christianity. That might sting, but we all know it's true. Jethro did not personally know the God of the Exodus. He was engaged in a completely different belief system. He didn't know the God that had done all of this stuff with his son-in-law, but he was about to. Verse 9 says, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know. There's the moment right there. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all of the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. This is amazing. And for three decades of being a pastor, I glossed right over top of it. In the wilderness place, God's priority is still seeking and saving lost people. People who are far from him. People who are stuck in a spiritual wilderness. Here's the point. God actually saves Jethro. Now think about it for a second. Jethro's far from God. He's in his own wilderness place. And in the middle of saving his own people from bondage, God is still pursuing a man who is far from his heart. I just love the beauty and the simplicity of the story. Moses is in relationship with someone far from God. Let's stop there just for a second. How many people do you know and consider friends that are far from God? How many people do you know that are outside of the Christian bubble? And when was the last time you thought of them as someone that God loved so much that he died on a cross in order to save them? Moses is in relationship with someone who's far from God. Moses shares his God story. And Jethro is moved by God's love for someone else. And then Jethro has an epiphany. If God loves them, God must love me. Jethro makes a declaration of faith. He worships the one true God. Biblical community surrounds him. They share a meal and a conversation. And Jethro is never, ever, ever 
The same again. This is so important. In the middle of all of the wilderness moments, the heart of God is still for pursuing lost people. This is God's priority, and it should be our priority. Now we're going to make it sting. Where has your priority been for the last 10 months? Has it been on all of the people around you that are far from God and are stuck in the wilderness and need a savior more than anything? Has that been your focus or has your focus been on you, your anger, your rights, your party line, your politics, your obsession with justice, your conspiracy theories, your avoidance, your fear? I'm not doing any of this with anybody. Has it been there or has it been on the heart of God and lost That was convicting for me. I hope it was convicting for all of us when we realize what God really cares about. This liminal space, the in-between space, the transitional space, it's a salvation space. It's a saving place. Okay, that was all introduction. Now comes the famous part. Some of you just got really nervous. All right, stick with me. Here comes the famous part because there are so many principles in here for all of us. Here's what the Bible says happens next. So 24 hours ago, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to a saving knowledge of God. And then this happens. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. This work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representatives before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and his instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from among the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. Here are eight leadership principles 
that come out of the second half of Exodus chapter 18. Not a single one of them is original to me. I've collected them over years because I've been to a lot of Christian conferences. And when they talk about leadership, somehow they always end up in Exodus chapter 18. And before you disqualify yourself and say, well, Grant, if there are eight leadership principles, then I'm out because I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. Every person in this room is a leader. Leadership is influence, and you all have influence. Every single one of us is leading someone or something. It may only be ourselves, but let me ask you a question. What is more important than leading the self that the king of the universe actually created you to be? This is an incredibly big deal. So here's eight leadership lessons from nowhere. I want to remind you that liminal transitional space It's a salvation space, but it's also a learning space. So let's learn together because I am still trying to figure this stuff out myself. Principle number one, godly leaders often get way out into the weeds. And I mean way out into the weeds. It is so easy to get caught up refereeing the stupid disputes of people. And yes, I said the word stupid, and I know some five or six-year-old is going to call me out and say, Pastor, you should not use that word, but these are stupid disputes. The Bible actually says that. Moses is supposed to be leading an exodus, but instead he's refereeing opinions between people. What a glorious waste of time. And there's a lesson for all of us. It is so easy to get distracted from the mission of God in the silly disputes that we have that are actually just opinions pitted against each other. What's the lesson for leaders, for all of us? It's this, give your best time to what makes the greatest impact. The best of your day should go towards making the greatest impact. I am still learning this as a leader. Every day I have to learn this lesson. What I prioritize gets done. What I don't prioritize, it gets lost. For a long time, I did not prioritize my own spiritual growth. I spent more time working for Jesus than I did walking with Jesus. And the rate at which I was doing the work of God was actually killing the work of God inside of me. But no more. The best and richest part of your day should belong to the one who created the day and gave you the ability to breathe and actually live inside of that day. So you can put whatever leadership motto you want to on it. They all work. First things first. Keep the main thing the main thing. Prioritize your priorities. Whatever it happens to be, pick your own creed, but then actually live it. The best part of you should be offered to God as an offering every single day. Without God, you're not living anyway. So live with him. Live with him. Number two, godly leaders are not afraid of correction. I love verses 17 and 18. His father-in-law speaks up, and here's a blunt statement to your son-in-law. What you are doing is not good. Let me translate the Hebrew for you. You idiot. This is not working. That's not actually in there. I put it in there myself. Okay, so stick with me, all right? You and these people who come to you, you're only going to wear yourselves out. This work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. He corrects his son-in-law, and he's only 24 hours out from beginning a relationship with God. There was a time as a younger pastor when I was doing a lot of counseling, way, way, way too much counseling. It was wearing me out every single day, and it was making me grumpy. Here's what was weird. It seemed like the grumpier I got, the more effective it was, the actual counseling. And let me tell you why. Because by session three in the afternoon, 
I'm talking to married couples. Again, I got a, a, an appointment at one, at two, and by the time I got to three o'clock, you walk in the door, doesn't matter what the issue is, you just kind of stare at them for five minutes and then it's like, knock it off. Just stop talking. You both claim to be followers of Jesus for the love of God, act like it. Get out. <laughs> There's not a lot of love or grace or joy or peace or patience or wisdom. And here was the other part of it. I was dying. Praise God for men like John Havland. John was the first one to have a Jethro talk with me. John actually walked into my office and said, and I quote, Grant, don't be an idiot. This is not working. Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept instruction and in the end, you will be wise. Principle number three or four, whichever one we're on, godly leaders are humble. You know, if you think about it, Moses could have done a complete ego trip right here. He could have said, excuse me, dad. Do you have any idea what we've actually just come through and what I've actually been leading? Like, I'm kind of a big deal around here. I mean, I just parted the sea with a stick. I got this group of whiners out of Egypt. I arranged that whole manna breakfast on the ground thing every single morning. What do you mean what you are doing is not good? Really? Moses could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, verse 19 says, listen now to me, Moses. And Moses did. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And I would in include in that the people that God sends to you that put a heavy hand on your shoulder and say, you need to course correct. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Moses is humble enough to hear and recognize good wisdom, even though it's coming from somebody who's only 24 hours into their spiritual journey. We need to be open to hearing wisdom, open to hearing correction, open to hearing what it is that God may be saying through someone else. The best wisdom I ever heard sounds like this. When pride walks onto a stage, Jesus walks off. That's something we should all remember all of the time. Let's keep moving. Godly leaders teach people how, not what to think. It would be so much easier to actually just walk out week after week and tell you what to think. Think this, you'll be fine. Here's three easy steps to a perfect life. Do this and you're good. And there are times when I would love to tell you what to think. There are times I would love to tell you who to vote for. It's actually easier, but I don't believe it's right. That's not what I want for you. What I want is for us as a biblical community to come together with tough issues, to open up the eternal and perfect word of God, to struggle with God's opinions, God's standards, and God's laws, and then make decisions out of that because we've actually sought God and heard God, so we have his opinion, not the opinion of some other human being. Verse 20 says this, teach them the decrees and laws, show them the way to live. Show them the way to live. Last week, I got to preside at the memorial service for Tom Cox. Tom was a kind, gentle man from our church who lived the gospel in a quiet, simple, beautiful way. Now, don't get me wrong. Tom could talk. 
But Tom understood this. People would rather watch how you live than listen to you just ramble on and on and on. At his memorial service, I, I used this old poem that I actually received from a youth ministry professor years ago. It says this, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. The best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be wise and very true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and the high advice you give. There's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Proverbs 9, instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Let's keep going. Godly leaders empower others and they share the work. Jethro did it here in Exodus. He said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Select capable people from the nation, delegate the authority and put them in charge. Actually, let them serve. Make sure they fear God, that they're trustworthy, they don't want dishonest gain, but actually release them to serve. Jesus, or Jethro did it here. Jesus did it with his 12 disciples, and Paul did it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, In the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Moses is begging his son-in-law, give the work away. Not so you can be lazy, but so that you can actually push yourself into the priorities and do what God has called you to do. Why are you going to do that? Because you want to raise up another generation. Because you want to have someone to hand your work to. And oh, by the way, here's the attitude. It shouldn't be to try and suppress the generation behind you. It's to empower the generation behind you so they can do even greater things than you ever dreamed of accomplishing. The Bible says over and over again, we're supposed to raise and release. We're supposed to do less in order to accomplish more. We're supposed to give young leaders opportunities to step here. I actually had somebody say the other day, I didn't even know how to respond. They said, Grant, don't you get intimidated when Brian does so well when he's preaching? I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like a proud dad. Third John says, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the truth. Every one of us should be raising up new leaders and then releasing them to do what God wants them to do when and through them. Wayne Cordero, who was an amazing pastor in Hawaii, once said this, if you don't give young leaders an opportunity to lead, eventually they will lead a revolt against you. So let them lead, raise and release. It's biblical. Another principle, godly leaders stand the test of time. You know, why was Jethro so concerned about his son-in-law? One word, burnout. He was watching Moses get cooked by the demands of people. Do you remember the last chapter that Emily taught so well? I mean, she talked about the fact that, that here's Moses, right? And he's overlooking a battlefield. As long as he can keep his hands up in the air, Israel's winning. His hands come down, Israel's losing. What do they do? They roll a stone up for the old guy, let him sit down, and two young leaders hold his hands up. I am not getting any younger. 
Every time I get my hair cut, there is more silver and gray on the cape. It's kind of disconcerting. It's disconcerting unless you know that there's another wave of leaders who you dream of doing so much more than you were ever able to accomplish. Jethro's begging, Moses, you need to let some of these young leaders get in the game. You need to empower them. You need to release them. Verse 23, Jethro says, If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Here is a shocking and sobering truth. Most pastors last less than five years in the ministry total. Most youth pastors don't make it to year number two. You know why? Because we refuse to give ministry away and we forget who's in charge. Just in case you're wondering, if you ever want to know who's in the top box of the org chart at Christ the King Community Church, do not look at the platform, look at the name on the front of the building. Jesus is our pastor, Jesus is our shepherd, Jesus is our CEO, Jesus is our COO, Jesus is in charge of our mission and vision and values, Jesus is in charge of everything, and we all serve him. That's why we put his name on the front of the building to remind us continuously when we walk in here, this is not our kingdom, this is his. Somebody say amen. Thank you. Last principle. Ah, oh, we got a couple more. Let's keep going. Godly leaders are teachable. I love the simplicity of verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Moses absorbs wisdom from his father-in-law. Here's a small piece of wisdom today. When you have to be right all the time, you're already wrong. I picked that out from somebody along the road. I'm not even exactly sure who it came from. I've been so blessed with great teachers and their wisdom sticks with me. Pastor Jim Scobie used to say, Grant, if you want to be a great pastor, soft heart, thick skin, good wisdom. Bob Guthrie, who was a hospital chaplain for years, I asked him once, I said, Bob, how have you lasted so long? Here's what he said. I never let a person's sin bother me until it bothers them first. Pastor Charlie Middlebrook said this to me one time, Grant, never miss out on a glorious opportunity to just shut up. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. John Havlin said, never let anyone but Jesus sign your report card. Pastor Andy Stanley said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And this piece of wisdom was actually proclaimed over Laurel and I every time we would leave the farmyard by her dad. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Some of you say, but Grant, that's a blessing. No, it's actually wisdom if you turn towards God and not away. Last one. Godly leaders set good boundaries. I kind of giggled when I got to the last line of the chapter because it just says, then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way. So it's just like, hey, dad, you've been here long enough. Time to go home. Thanks for the wisdom. I deeply appreciate it. But 
God, I have a boundary. Time for you to go home. I, I, need, to, I need to spend some time with my family. I think that's actually a brilliant small piece of wisdom here that godly leaders have good boundaries. Jesus put it this way. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You're allowed to say no. Just make sure it's a godly no. You're allowed to say yes. Just make sure that it's a godly yes. Don't settle for just a good yes. Just make sure it's godly and then God will bless you in the mission that he has you on. Here's the simple truth. It's okay for you to know your limits. For the record, only God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And because he is, none of us have to be. Know your limits. As we're reading through the book of Exodus, you're going to find about something about Moses as a leader. He has moments where he's complaining. What's interesting is he's complaining about the fact that the people are complaining about him. <laughs> but he never gets stuck there. He complains for a moment. He has a moment of lament, a moment of sorrow, a moment of anger even, and then he quickly turns from complaining to committing. So here's my question today. All of us are leaders. Every single one of us, we're leading somebody or something. We may be leading ourselves, our family, a work assignment, whatever it happens to be, but in that role, in the role that God has given you in the leadership moment and the wilderness place that we find ourselves, we still have one of two options. We can complain or we can commit. I am so tempted to complain some days. I mean, I've complained about more things than I can remember over the last... I mean, I long for the day when I can actually see your mouth and your teeth. I can't wait to be able to see you, your whole face, to see if you're smiling or frowning or saying things behind your mask. I can't read anybody in the room. I can't wait for the day that's over. In fact, I'm going to tell you something right now. On the day when we get to peel those things off and it's okay to be within six feet of each other, I'm lining up at the front door and I'm going to hug all of you. I don't care if you're huggers or not huggers. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to stick out my hand. We're actually going to have human flesh press against human flesh and we're going to celebrate that moment together. Now, because you know how I feel about this, you go, boy, yeah, this is just horrible. Like, I hate this stuff. This is terrible bad. It's a no good, very bad day. We could complain or we could be the kind of people who commit to the fact that one day God's got a plan and we're going to follow that plan. And in the meantime, we're going to commit to Jesus in a way we've never committed to Jesus before. And we're going to worship him and we're going to do everything we can to work through a piece of cloth to actually be able to love the people that God has put around us. And we're going to focus on the fact that God put a neighbor down the street from us who may not share the same political ideology that we have, but they are someone that God loves so much that he was willing to die for them. And I'm going to keep them as my focus and I'm going to love them and serve them and talk about Jesus to them to the best of my ability because this is both a learning space but it's also a saving space. My prayer is that we will commit deeper to Jesus than we ever have before in this liminal in-between time, the time of the wilderness. Funny thing about the wilderness is that when God meets you there, he'll actually walk you through it. It might take a while but he'll walk you through it and never ever lose sight of the fact that on the other side of the wilderness is a promised land. For the believer, it's eternity in heaven with Jesus 
where there's no more tears, no more family trauma, no more cancer, no more viruses, no more politics, Jesus on the throne, and that's it. That's where we aspire to. So the second half of Exodus 18 is a learning space. The first half is a salvation space. And I want to come back to the first space. If you're watching today or you're in the room and you have never begun a personal relationship with God like Jethro did, you can today. Today could be the day of your salvation. And my prayer is that right now you'll pray with me. Because no one should be in the wilderness alone. What I know is this, God will show up. God will show up. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, right now, right now. I pray for all those who feel lost and alone in a wilderness space. And I pray in the name of Jesus right now that they would turn towards you, not away. God, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer. Jesus, save me. God, I feel alone, isolated. I feel like everything around me is wilderness and I don't know where to turn. So instead of turning away from you, which I've done before, I'm going to turn towards you. So Jesus, right now, I give my heart fully and completely to you. And I ask that you would lead me through this wilderness to the promised land of eternity. God, I confess my sin. I repent of the fact that I've tried to, to navigate the wilderness on my own, but I'm saying right now, no more. I'm turning towards you, not away. So Jesus, would you forgive me? Wash my record clean. Take me by the hand and walk me through every day from now until my last breath. My heart is yours. You are my king. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we believe if you prayed a simple prayer of faith like that, that God just transformed you. Your past is no longer held against you now, right in this moment. You are forgiven and set free. God, thank you for transforming people's lives and hearts. God, thank you that you are in the, business of, in, the, in the business of coming towards us in the wilderness space. God, may we reach for your hand every day this week as we live out these principles and this wisdom from Exodus 18. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.